what does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Welcome to the Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. All right, welcome to Radio Free Canada. News and notes from the underground for Tuesday, September the 14th. I will not comply. Cases are not infections. The vaccinated can spread COVID. Natural immunity from a previous infection is 13 times, 13 times more robust than a double dose of a COVID vaccine. And uh, there is zero logic behind a vaccine passport system. Zero. Like a QR code is suddenly going to stop the spread of a respiratory virus. My word. I know I said all of these things yesterday. Get used to it. That's my opening salvo until this madness ends and we get our country back. In other words, you may be hearing those words for a very long time, at least until they drag me out of my studio and I don't know, throw me into the back of a van with blacked out windows. Uh, I saw this meme on social media today and it pretty much sums up the vaccine or the argument sums up the argument for mandated vaccines because I got the vaccine. Let me back up here. You must get the vaccine. Here's the argument. Take two. You are you listening, Jacob? This is good. You must get the vaccine to protect me because I got the vaccine and I don't trust the vaccine to protect me. There you go. That's the meme. All right. Uh, The UK has abandoned. Did you like that, Jacob? Yes, I'm getting that. No, he's shrugging his shoulders. All right. <laughs> Even he's against me. Uh, the, the UK has abandoned its plan to bring in a vaccine passport this winter. And that's kind of a victory, I guess. That's the cr- a crack 
in the foundation, maybe more countries will start paying attention and reverse course. Not Canada or Australia. I'm not. I mean, we're lost. We're behind the curve. But for now, anyway, I live kind of vicariously uh, through the Brits and I celebrate the momentary lapse of reason over there. We could do with a little momentary lapse of reason over here. Uh, Even our chief health officer, Dr. Tam, is shooting straight on this. She was asked by reporters about about the efficacy of vaccine passports. She says we haven't studied whether vaccine passports work. There's no proof they work. Tom Korski from Blacklock's Reporter will be here with that story. Independent MPP Roman Baber will be here. He wants the provincial government to prevent employers from firing or sidelining workers who refuse to get vaccinated. And he's calling on our radical left-wing premier to recall the legislature to deal with that issue. I could get get behind that. I could get behind Roman uh, Babber's initiative here. Wants to make the provincial, he wants the provincial government to prevent employers from firing or sidelining workers who refuse to get vaccinated. Uh, Tuesday, we offer up uh, tips and advice for parents considering homeschooling their children. And Ruth Gaskowski will be here to talk about homeschooling and homeschooling co-ops, how to form homeschooling co-op, co-ops with other parents. Maybe you, you feel like you can't do it all on your own. Maybe you don't feel like you're equipped to teach science. That can be tricky. You don't have a Bunsen burner. You don't have a chemistry set. So what you do is you, you, pool your resources, you find some like-minded parents and you form a homeschooling co-op and maybe you hire a science teacher, you rent out a church basement, maybe it's got a, a gymnasium attached to it and all of a sudden there you, there you have science and, and gymnasium and some other students for your, uh, your children to socialize with. That's a homeschooling co-op. So Ruth Gazgowski will be here and she's a veteran. She's run homeschooling co-ops for many years. She ran one uh, that uh, my boys attended. It's fantastic. It's time, you know, you start looking at this as a way of really taking charge of your child's education the way it was meant to be. Uh, I've always maintained that the left, when I say the left, let's be, be clear here. I'm not talking about classical liberals. I'm talking about, the radical progressive left that has taken over all of our institutions and all of our major political parties. They're a death cult. Uh, Those are the values that they promote. Anyway, here's more proof. The liberals with a capital L who pander to the worst instincts of this death cult, they plan on banning charitable status to any organization that they deem to be anti-abortion. Think about that. They're going to decide who gets charitable status and not. Uh, Marty Moore is a lawyer for the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, and uh, he'll be here in the second hour. And uh, that group, uh, we've had them on a couple of times. They're called the Canadian Academics for COVID Ethics. And they have authored yet another open letter. They wrote one to the vaccinated. They wrote one to the unvaccinated, telling them, stand your ground, we're behind you. And now they've written a third And all of these have been published in the Ontario Civil Liberties Association website, OCLA. Uh, This one is an open letter to public health officials. 
accusing them of spreading fear, misinformation, and of forcing family and ER doctors to abandon their Hippocratic oaths to do uh, to first do no harm. And one of the authors of this open letter joins me uh, in our feature interview today. Hey, Lou, how you doing, buddy? Well, you know, it's another great day in Oakville. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. Is that a tax the rich tie you're wearing? Uh, not yet, although I did order one from AOC. You know, I'm told you can get one for, I don't know, twenty five, thirty five thousand. So is that was that was the price of a ducat to get into the Met for that exclusive gala, was it? Yeah, it's an annual event, right? The Met Gala it has a theme. And this year, the theme was about the United States of America. And AOC decided to wear a dress that had tax the rich on it, even right. though the cost of entry, the price of entry was like $35,000. And, um, you know, you just got to add Deborah Harry wore a dress that had that whose theme was a tattered American flag, a little bit over the top. But, hey, you know, these are the crazy people that have gotten, uh, in one case, elected to uh, political office and another that is trying to find a way, you know, back to the 80s, which is almost impossible. <laughs> Unless you have a time machine. Yeah, Tad. Yeah. And she was bragging. First of all, as you say, she wears this. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Are you ready for a rewarding career in the electrical industry? Quality Electric of the Coastal Carolinas, QECC, is looking for qualified electricians and electrical helpers to join its Charleston team. QECC offers guaranteed full-time hours, make up to $30 per hour with possible performance bonuses and career growth opportunities. Enjoy benefits like health insurance, dental and vision coverage, 401k plans, and more. If you're a motivated, experienced electrician, this job is for you. QECC is an equal opportunity employer. For all job inquiries, send email to hr at qeccinc.com designer gown with tax the rich uh on it and she goes into this gala that cost about thirty thousand dollars per plate uh, don't you think maybe that that gown would have gone over better at the dollar store <laughs> well you know i mean maybe she's going to come out with a line for all her acolytes that you know may want to slither around in it but that's fine you know uh another one of the attendees and whose name I forgot, I think it's uh, uh, Davigny. Uh, okay. She's a model actress, Clara Davigny, I oh, think is the name heard. of, yeah, well, 
of course, but she was wearing a some kind of a T-shirt or top that said Peg the um, Patriarchy. I don't know if you saw that. That would be you and me. <laughs> What's that? That would be you and me, right? The Patriarchy. Yeah, well, Peg, I had to look it up in the uh, I had to look it up in the Urban Dictionary. Oh, you have one of those kicking around, do you? Well, I got one on the Google machine. Oh, okay. And, um, you know, was seems quite violent, really. Peg, as in drive a wooden stake into the breastplate? Oh, no, there's, it's not the breast. <laughs> go, go to the other end. Yikes. Yikes. Oh. You know, kind of like Vlad the Impaler type of stuff. Oh, lovely. Lovely. <laughs> Our future. Well, you know, it's, it involved a strap on and everything else. I mean, it's how I okay. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. <laughs> that's make the patriarchy. That's love. That's a love. <laughs> Give it to him. The Met, no less. Yeah, at the Met, you know. But again, you know, it's I guess it's accepted. If you went in there with a MAGA hat, I guess you'd be, you know, uh, mar- frog marched out of there and you know thrown into cuffs and you know into a dark dungeon somewhere. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. Just got a, a couple minutes here, but I just I just this came across the wire, as we say in the news business, Lou. And I wanted to share this with you. Uh, technocrats are preparing mandatory personal carbon allowances that would introduce rationing into every area of your life via an app that would record your travel, heating expenses, even the food you eat. And um, uh, the authors, these are. Uh, This was proposed in the science journal Nature by four environmental experts as a means of reducing global carbon emissions. So right next to your uh, air travel, your air bonus uh, card and your, uh, I don't know, your LCBO card, gift card, you're going to have, I guess, a carbon credit card that you're going to have to pay for everything with. And uh, well, you're talking about an app, right? Is that going to be available to me on my flip phone? No, sir. I think everyone should, you know, revert back to the flip phone, the princess phone, you know, the pink dial up phone that was the modern equivalent of everything Bell could come up with back in the day. You know, I I, I don't know how all that's going to work for me. I I, I love it. I've got I've got this stupid I-10, which I hate. Yeah. I keep telling the mighty Aphrodite, I want to go back to the flip phone and, and my, you know, the boys are rolling their eyes. No, 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 don't go back. Why not? Why not? Well, it saves you. Like I have, a, I'm a, I'm a senior citizen. These are my golden years. How am I going to adapt to this newfangled thing that you want me to do, you know, as a COVID card and a carbon card, you know, an app on my smartphone. My phone is as smart as I am. Okay. Indeed, sir. All right. Traffic on the fives, Lou. Hey, I'm committed. Let's go. All right. I'm committed, too. We'll be back. We'll be back in a few minutes. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, uh, Dr. Tam saying there's no proof vaccine passports work, Lou. There is no proof. Tom Korski from Blacklocks uh, Reporter is next with that one. We're back as the Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk Saga 960 AM. This is interesting. I, uh, Dr. Tam, you know, she wasn't talking to uh, doctors. She won't tell them about pandemic plans, <laughs> but she's talking to reporters. Funny thing that uh, she told reporters there is currently no evidence that the vaccine passport system 
uh, works. Imagine that, like a QR code. It's not going to stop the spread of a respiratory disease. I never would have thought that. But uh, let's get the straight goods from our good friend, Tom Korski, managing editor for Black Locks Reporter. They are minding Ottawa's business. Tom, welcome back. How are you? I'm well, thank you, Richard. So, uh, first of all, yeah, she, she's not picking up the phone to call to talk to doctors, but she does have time to speak to reporters, which I guess we should be thankful for, right? <laughs> not, not, not this time. <laughs> no evidence, uh, Richard. No science, no data, no studies. Do so, vaccine passports work? No, she said. We, we, we don't know. And what we did, should look at that. What, do they, what does she mean by they don't work or we don't know that they work? Work in what way? Uh, in other words, persuade the uh, estimated 5 million functioning, hardworking, taxpaying, eligible adults who have declined a COVID vaccine to date. That's the whole point of the passports is to get vaccination rates up. What about those 5 million people? So they... The, that, that's the whole point of the uh, compulsory vaccination program or requiring disclosure of private health information to access public services. Currently, a breach of federal law, a breach of the Privacy Act. Is there any evidence that vaccine passports work? Dr. Tam, chief public health officer, was asked, and she said, no, we don't have any. We don't have any figures, no data, no studies. We should look at that, she said. But they have no data, no science. Now, this is interesting because you know, I, I've sort of long suspected that that was the stated purpose of these passports. In other words, another form of coercion. Um, I, I just didn't think they actually said it out loud because to me, it's the same as asking, well, if we fire people who refuse to get vaccines, will that improve the uptake of vaccines? In other words, they're, they're basically stating out loud Yes, this is a form of coercion. Indeed, it is. And we know it's, in fact, an extreme measure. I quote an authority, not a scientist, uh, the Prime Minister of Canada, who seven months ago described vaccine passports as an extreme and divisive measure that will divide our communities, said the Prime Minister. I'm quoting him. And he went on to say he could think of lots of legitimate reasons why someone would decline to be vaccinated. Religious reasons, goes through your church, political reasons. Some people are civil libertarians. Medical reasons, of course. Lots of reasons why someone would decline a vaccination. And the prime minister, no less an authority, said that vaccine passports were extreme and divisive. And I don't think it'll be necessary, he said. The prime minister obviously changed his mind. He's called an election. What he's described depicted it as a, as a referendum on vaccine mandates. But whatever changed his mind was not science, because there is no science on this. No less an authority than the public health agency says it doesn't exist. And I, and I believe the Ontario Science Table has also uh, said similar things, have they not? Exactly. This, there is no data anywhere. The United States, Britain, you name it. There's, there, there is no data that says if you force people who clearly, uh, millions of them in our country, do not feel compelled to take orders from the government of Canada, there's no evidence that if you make life difficult for them, they'll change their mind. Isn't there something else that could be done, Dr. Tam was asked, and she said, well, sure, maybe. If you want to get the kids, maybe get some minor celebrities on TikTok. 
if you want to get other people, if you want to get working people who are unvaccinated, how about roving vaccine clinics in workplaces? How about a blood drive? You know, they used to have those all the time, just right outside the, the workplace, the factory, the office. How about that? That might be an idea. There are many proposals that are just as we could say valid as a vaccine passport that governments have decided not to opt for. Right. So if we can't coerce them with a, a by denying them entry in, into uh, restaurants and and uh, and bars, uh, maybe we should go back to trying to trick them with free ice cream <laughs> for the kitty. I'm not a, I don't on this, Tom, but I would it would just stand to reason. Maybe there have been studies and I haven't seen them that a vaccine passport would actually just further entrench those positions and that vaccine hesitancy. It's because it does raise suspicions. Uh, it's it's one thing to say, well, we really encourage you to take the vaccine, uh, but then to say, and if you don't, we're going to punish you. I would think that a lot of people uh, who were maybe on the fence would 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 be taken aback by that and would maybe even double down. So maybe it actually even promotes vaccine hesitancy. Point taken, Richard. And and this is also perhaps an element that really this is a red herring. This is scapegoating. Is this does anyone really believe that these five million people are to blame for pandemic mismanagement? The fact that we're about to lose a second Thanksgiving, a second Christmas. Will it be three Easter's we lose? Are they to blame for late closure of the borders, the inadequate supply of medical masks and pandemic uh, protective equipment? Is it their fault? Or is this politics? We know it's not science, so it must be something else. But you're in the campaign and these people are being scapegoated. It makes others a little uncomfortable. Don't get me wrong. Proponents of it are having the time of their life. We see it on social media, carrot and stick. They said, let's bring out the sticks. I find that a very uncomfortable. I find that a dark place, Richard. Absolutely. I can't even believe people are talking like this out loud, like the minister of education in New Brunswick uh, and the prime minister. You know, they're losing their patience with uh, those who have uh, decided not to take the vaccine. Uh, Tom, always stellar work. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Richard. Tom Korski, Managing Editor for Black Locks Reporter. All right. When we come back, Independent MPP Roman Baber is set to table a bill to prevent unvaccinated people from being fired. He's next. Let's get back at it on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. It's the Richard Serra Show. Independent MPP is calling on Premier Ford to protect workers' jobs and privacy on COVID-19 vaccination status. And uh, Roman Haber is the independent MPP from York Centre, and he joins me now. Hello, Roman. Welcome back. How are you? Good to be with you, Richard. So tell me about the Jobs and Jabs Act. Great name, by the way. Thank you. So my proposed private member's bill uh, amends the Employment Standards Act to prohibit employers from intimidating, dismissing, uh, placing on leave, or uh, otherwise penalizing an employee uh, because of an employee's vaccination status or because the employer refuses to disclose their vaccination status. And I feel that the bill uh, has the prospect of uh, saving uh, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of jobs. And this has to be done, this would have to be done by a full vote in the legislature, they would have to be called back? 
Yes, so we would need an amendment to the Employment Standards Act, which means we would need uh, the ledge to come back and, and vote on it. My intention is to introduce it as soon as I'm able to do so uh, and then move the bill uh, on consent to third reading so we don't have to wait uh, 8 to 12 months, uh, which is what it typically takes between readings. Uh, but at the same time, the legislature is not sitting right now. Uh, as you may know, uh, Doug Ford prorogued, suspended the legislature until October 4th. And so I called on the premier this morning to uh, recall the legislature so we can table my bill, pass it and potentially save hundreds of thousands of jobs. And has he gotten back to you? I have shared uh, a draft of my bill with the uh, uh, conservative House leader this morning. I have not uh, heard from anyone uh, as of now. Do you need a now you'll have to give me a bit of a civics lesson here, Roman, with regards to tabling private members bills. Uh, does that need a, um, a seconder, as they used to say? It, it does not. Um, as long. But in order to move it, you need unanimous consent. In other words, bills are likely to pass first reading. They're not likely to be opposed, especially when they appear to seem to do the right thing. And then typically uh, the government, if they're not interested in the bill, they just hold it in purgatory and let it die. But um, in, in, in this case, because of the urgency, I would look to uh, move it immediately to second and third reading. And for that, I would need the unanimous consent of everyone that's present in the legislature at the time. If you recall my previous bill, um, the uh, effectively pay them the CERB bill, uh, we're all in this together, um, the conservatives uh, um, denied, withheld unanimous consent, and my attempt to pass a bill which would pay MPPs the same amount as we pay people on the CERB until all the emergency orders are revoked was denied by the government. And uh, so hopefully that doesn't happen now and they don't withhold unanimous consent when, in fact, I'm able to introduce it, which I anticipate will be on October 5th. But of course, I call on Doug Ford, given the urgency and given that uh, I hear from dozens of folks that are losing their jobs every day to recall the legislature and, and, and save their livelihoods. Uh, well, uh, if memory serves, not only did they unanimously vote down that that uh, previous uh, bill, but they also voted to dock your pay. So I'm hoping that history will repeat itself. Uh, and I don't know how they'll react. Let's hope it's it's uh, favorably and with an open mind and an open heart. Uh, it, interesting, you mentioned uh, intimidation, that businesses or employers shouldn't be allowed to use intimidation as well, except that isn't the government itself already doing that? Isn't the 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 coercive vaccine passport system, a form of intimidation? Yeah, so so with respect to the bill, uh, it seeks to prevent employee, employers from dismissing or placing on leave or penalizing an employee for, for not vaccinating um, uh, or from threatening them to do so uh, because they're, they're not vaccinating. And uh, however, I, I would tend to agree with you that, um, I mean, the vaccine passports to begin with seem to be creating a two-tiered society whereby uh, folks no longer have um, no longer have the uh, perceived option of informed consent. And, and, and Richard, I, I want to be very, very clear with your listeners and, and with yourself as well. I'm in favor 
of voluntary vaccination, um, which is why I'm vaccinated myself. But we're still a civilized democracy and we've never forced people to submit to a medical procedure without consent. And sentencing someone to the unemployment line uh, takes away that informed consent. And we shouldn't be name calling folks who may have hesitancy or questions. We're actually creating division that isn't helping the situation. So instead, um, I actually propose that we focus on information and education to encourage informed consent, but certainly not force our will on anybody. Uh, you're correct. These are these are dark days. What what is happening now uh, is normally unthinkable in a uh, a Western liberal democracy. The things that are being said by our our po- politicians and even the media bring on the sidelines. These are the things that are not even contemplated or said out loud in a civil society. However, Roman, I wish you the best of luck with the Jobs and Jabs Act. We'll watch with interest and hopefully we'll have you on again soon for a victory lap. Let's see what happens. Well, hopefully uh, saving uh, those jobs, saving folks that are now in danger of losing their livelihood because they made a different medical choice. Saving those should be par for the course. I'd like to remind your listeners that Doug Ford campaign on on uh, on being on, having an Ontario that's open for business and open for jobs, and now he's closed Ontario, and he's a and his policies are about to cost tens, if not hundreds, of thousands of jobs. Yeah, it's only open for jabs. All right, uh, Roman, yes. we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. Bye bye. MPP Roman Baber from York Center. All right, when we come back, fact check this. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM. Welcome back. For months, I've been telling you about the wonderful health products from my good friends at North American Herb and Spice. And I've been telling you and, well, everyone I know about how to get maximum immune support from P73 Wild Oregano. Whether you prefer the drops, gel caps, powder, or even inhalants, North American Herb and Spice has a whole line of wild oregano supplements to support a healthy immune response. P73 Wild Oregano is available at fine health food stores across the GTA, or you can order online at oreganol.com. Visit the website and sign up for North American Herb and Spice's newsletter, and then receive five percent off when you order online p73 wild oregano for a healthy immune system from north american herb and spice the website once again oreganol.com let me spell it for you o-r-e-g-a-n-o-l 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 oreganol.com how do we determine what is true what is false and what is misleading fact check this all right just a quick word though I knew I came to the right radio station to work, Saga 960. I'm looking through the Zoom to uh, my, my, my intrepid producer, Brandon, our, also our traffic reporter. And in the background, a, uh, a Stiga Stanley Cup tabletop hockey set. Very cool. I know I'm in the right place. One day, Brandon, you and I are going to have a match. Maybe you're going to host the Christmas party and we're going to play. Uh, we're going to go to the mats, my friend. Tabletop hockey. That's my game. All right. I came I came with audio, folks. I came with a bag full of audio. All right. Let me ask you something. What's worse than a moron? How about a moron with power and authority to make your life miserable? Have a listen to this joker. This is the education minister in New Brunswick, Dominic Cardi, 
talking about uh, the unvaccinated and what he thinks of the unvaccinated. At some point, we have to say that there's going to be a response by the vaccinated, by the enormous majority who've done the right thing, and that there's going to be a decline in tolerance for those who, for whatever reasons, endanger the lives of the people around them. That's about where I am right now. That's about where you are right now? Let me tell you where you are right now, you moron. You're in Stupidville. That's where you are. Let's break this this titanic ignorance down, shall we? First of all, a tiny minority, there's between five and six million Canadians who, for whatever reason, have decided not to take the vaccine. If you add in those that are only partially vaccinated, now the number rises to 7.2. That's hardly a tiny minority. Secondly, explain to me how it is all right in a civil society, in a liberal Western democracy, to say something that horrible out loud, that we're losing patience with the unvaccinated, and, and maybe we're going to be less tolerant of the unvaccinated. What are you suggesting, Herr Cardi? Exactly what form will that intolerance take? You are, you are on a knife's edge, like our crime minister, of incitement. The knife's edge of incitement. Reckless, irresponsible, hateful, divisive. You're not worthy to hold office in this country. That's a disgrace. That is a disgrace. All right, I wanna jump ahead here, um, Jacob, if I could. One of the, 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 the best arguments I've heard um, regarding those people that say that the rights of the vaccinated to be protected from COVID trump the rights of the unvaccinated who wanna refuse a forced experimental medical intervention comes from Matt Walsh. He's the host of the Matt Walsh show. He's a brilliant mind and uh, he's uh, part of uh, the Daily Wire that also includes people like uh, Candace Owens and, and Ben Shapiro. Have a listen. Uh, here's Matt Walsh. Um, uh, clip one, Jacob. Do we as Americans have the freedom to go out and know that we are less vulnerable to a deadly disease? No, we don't have that freedom. We don't have that right. In Cheryl Stolberg's phrase to not get killed by an infectious disease that right doesn't exist that is not a right that exists it can't exist you don't have the right to be free from infectious diseases for the same reason that you don't have the right to be free from osteoporosis or asteroids or shark attacks these are all risks that come with being mortal creatures living within a natural reality that we cannot control if infectious diseases infringe on your rights What or who is doing the infringing? Granted, a person who intentionally infects you with a disease, intentionally, may be reasonably accused of infringing on your rights. Just as you could say that your rights are infringed if somebody physically throws you into a shark tank. But aside from direct and intentional acts of biological terrorism, sickness and disease are an inextricable part of life. To say that you have a right to be free from these risks is to say that you have a right to be free from the basic facts of reality. You may as well jump out of a window on that, on the basis that, you know, you have the right to be free from gravity. All right. There you go. I think that pretty much sums it up. I got more, but I don't have more time. So we'll uh, maybe we'll uh, circle back to some of these 
did I say circle back a la, a la, a la Miss Psaki? I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm never, I'm striking that from the, uh, the record and I'm never using that again. Circle back. Oh, I did it again. Anyway, uh, we'll take a time out here, but before we do, just a reminder, families who have decided to homeschool have a lot of options. Uh, one of them is co-ops and we'll discuss that with our homeschooling advisor, Ruth Gazgowski. When we come back, stay with us. Back to the conversation on the Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Back. Ruth Gaskowski is an experienced homeschooler, and uh, she's organized a number of homeschooling co-ops. And uh, you can read um, a lot of the... Um, the uh, the links and uh, documents that she's put together, you can find those at her website, humanitasfamily.net, humanitasfamily.net. And we're going to talk about co-ops today and how to... Uh, uh Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Um, uh, maybe form your own homeschooling co-op and some of the advantages of uh, homeschool groups, including co-ops. Ruth, welcome back once again. How are you? Very good, Richard. Thanks for having me. So uh, I guess, you know, it goes without saying there's no one size fits all homeschooling model. Um, and some some people may not have thought about the having that option of, of uh, forming homeschooling groups, pooling resources. Um, you know, not, it's not just about having your child in your home and you're teaching just them, right? Yeah, that's true. And um, I think one thing that stood out for me most that I think is the most important thing is all homeschoolers need community. So it's, uh, as you said, not just being in your home with your students. Uh, there are so many options available out there. And I would highly recommend them because one of the things is as homeschoolers, even though it's grown more popular, we're still swimming against the stream. And at times that can feel really isolating when all your friends and family, they're all, they all have their children in uh, normal public or private school, and it can make you feel sort of alone or maybe odd. And if you're having a rough day or a rough week, uh, you might question whether you've made the right choice or whether you're a good enough teacher or whether you're failing your child in some way. That happens to when you're alone. But the great thing is that when you get together with other homeschoolers, it helps to give you a bit of a reality check. 
because you hear others who can empathize with you and actually just say, hey, you know, we all have a bad day. And that happens whether your child is in school or whether you homeschool. And it can offer really great encouragement. So I think that's one of the most important things um, of connecting with others in a homeschool group. Right. Um, and I it's think about, it's not just about providing, you know, uh, classmates and, and, and playmates for your children. It's about support for you as the parent and a community for you as well. Yes, and I think that's actually really essential because it's not like as parents when we start out, we're going to take a course in how do I be a homeschool teacher. We need others to sort of mentor us. And that is a great uh, setting in a homeschool group. Um, when I started out, um, I met with a mom who's done it for 15 years and she took me kind of to the park and gave me sort of the intro and said, Ruth, read these three, bo- three books. They've guided me throughout all these years. And it's actually the same three books that I still refer back to at the beginning of every year for encouragement or others who've done all the curriculum. And they said, I wish someone had told me that this is the best spelling curriculum. And it can be very helpful uh, when you're starting out just to get advice from really seasoned homeschoolers. Um, But as you said, so on the one part, it's for the parent to get encouragement, advice and guidance. But obviously also it offers our children a chance to connect while doing academics together or some different kind of courses together. And this also really helps them with motivation and it gives them a bit of healthy competition as well, I think. There are other advantages uh, other than the ones you've stated, I think to um, forming a, um, let's call it a co-op, pooling resources. Um, and, and that is, there are certain subjects that uh, parents may not feel equipped uh, for science, for example. You know, I don't have a Bunsen burner. I, I don't have a chemistry set. So you know, right. maybe I want to pool my resources with other parents and actually hire a science teacher. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's exactly what we did. I think a lot of parents feel that they're able to guide their students through the early years and the middle grades. But I think once we kind of get to the slightly higher levels uh, in, uh, you know, grade eight and up in high school, we kind of, you know, (laughs) I don't remember my chemistry very well. And so what we did is we we hired a a science teacher who's taught uh, high school science. She's got all the experience. She has the background and we pool our resources and can share the cost and also share the cost of the materials. And the students have a very engaging time. Uh, we were able to do that, for example, with biology and got to do a whole lot of dissections of cow hearts and frogs and fish and worms, which would be something really messy and unappetizing to do at your own kitchen table, let alone knowing how to do it. So it's great to get people with specific skill areas that they can share, and uh, it benefits the whole group that way. Right. And and parents might be saying, well, if you're just going to hire a teacher, uh, and why not send them to regular school? But here you have, just like in the old days, when the, when the, when the parents really did have control, the parents of the community would hire the school teacher and the the ones, the one room schoolhouse, they hired the teacher. So you have that control. Right. And it allows you also to have control over what is actually being taught and what curriculum is being used. Um, So, for example, when we were teaching science, uh, we had the option of doing dissections, which are actually not available in many schools anymore. If uh, a relative of mine teaches 
high school science, and she, she said they didn't do a single hands-on exper- experiment all year long. It's just um, not available. So we did weekly experiments. So we had over 35 experiments through the whole year. So students get very different exposure, and you have the choice um, to direct them that way. And also into areas that maybe aren't offered in schools anymore, like Latin or uh, traditional logic. Right, right. And and if you if you pool your resources again, maybe you rent out a, a church basement, which I know you've done as part of a co. Yeah. Uh, that that uh, that facility may be attached to a gymnasium. All of a sudden, now you you can include uh, you know some team sports in your homeschooling. That's right. Yeah. And uh, it's very interesting once you start talking to the different homeschooled parents, what different expertise there is in order to do um, these different activities together. So, for example, we have uh, a basketball coach who used to coach Special Olympics and has volunteered her time to teach our kids. Um, We have uh, parents who are engineers or coders who can offer their expertise. So they have an additional investment because they know their children also benefit from the program and uh, they have a closer connection to the students. And um, I think that provides a lot of motivation for everyone. All right. So how can uh, people become part of a homeschooling group? Maybe they're, they're new to a, to an area. Maybe they've just moved to Ontario and, and they don't know where to start. How can they connect with other homeschoolers maybe and form a co-op? Right. Um, there are two very large organizations that have the connections to uh, 40 plus support groups in different areas in Ontario. One of them is the Ontario Christian Home Educators Connection. It's called OCHEC. I have a link to that on my website. So they have over 40 plus support groups depending on which area you live in. There's the Ontario Federation of Teaching Parents that also lists a whole lot of support groups. And then there are countless, countless Facebook groups uh, that homeschoolers have started up in order to connect with each other. And one of the things that I would like to encourage people to do is if you find a homeschool group, but they have a waiting list because there are so many homeschoolers around, I would encourage people to reach out via a Facebook group or other homeschool group mailing lists to introduce themselves. How many children do they have? What ages are they? What are they interested in doing together? And just welcome others to connect with you for social time or for academic studies. And these self-created smaller groups often have the potential to grow into their own homeschool groups and co-ops themselves. Fantastic. This is, uh, this is a terrific model. I think it's the model of the future. And uh, Ruth, you've, uh, you've put a lot of documents together and articles, and you've written some as well at uh, uh, humanitasfamily.net, H-U-M-A-N-I-T-A-S, humanitasfamily.net. There's even an article there uh, that you've posted on on co-ops, correct? That's right. Uh, It's posted today and includes all the information we talked about now. All right. And we'll continue to talk about co-ops uh, through over the next uh, several weeks. We'll talk about the early years, the elementary years, and, and maybe on into uh, high school, co-ops for high school, homeschooling. Terrific, Ruth. Thank you so much. We'll talk again next week. Okay. Thanks, Richard. Talk to you then. Bye-bye. All right. Humanitasfamily.net. Check it out. 
Hour two awaits. Of course, we'll have the German word of the day, news not on the news with Lou. And uh, we'll also uh, talk about this uh, liberal plan to revoke charity status for any group deemed to be anti-abortion. And also we'll check in with the uh, Canadian academics for COVID ethics. They've written another open letter, this time to public health uh, officers. So uh, you'll want to stay tuned to that. All right. Back with more right after these. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. The Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk Saga 960 AM. Hey, welcome back. Just wondering if they run that disclaimer for the uh, urban zoo. I don't know. Pretty controversial, that show. Guinea pigs. We're all guinea pigs, right? In Chairman Ford's province. Anyway, um, I actually enjoy that show. Helps me unwind the urban zoo because I love pets. I got a little uh, a dwarf bunny who owes me $900, but that's another story. Uh, anyway, this hour, uh, we'll speak with a member of Canadian Academics for COVID Ethics, Dr. Anton de Reuter. And uh, they've written an open letter, this group of academics. Uh, this is their third, if memory serves. And uh, their letters have been published on the website for the Ontario Civil Liberties Association, or OCLA.ca. And uh, they wrote one to the uh, unvaccinated, basically telling them, you know, be strong, stand your ground, we're with you. They wrote another one to the uh, vaccinated, basically imploring them to, you know, to, to be to be tolerant of the unvaccinated. And now they've written a third. And this one is directed uh, at the Ontario public health officers across the province. And um, one of the authors, Dr. Anton de Reuter, will be here to uh, talk about that. He's our feature guest today. And uh, we'll also speak with the uh, lawyer or a lawyer with the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. They're another group doing terrific work. And this is about a, a liberal proposal to ban charitable status to any organization the liberals deem to be anti-abortion. And um, anyway, this is to me, it's just, it's an attack on constitutional freedoms. And again, this is the weaponization of the Canada Revenue Agency. All right. Uh, what else do we have going on? Oh yeah, there's this. News, not in the news. The news. Hey Lou. Hey Richard. All right. Shall we get right to the German word of the day? Please bring it on. I can't wait. Okay. Jacob, please. This is just one word. Undermensch. The German word of the day. Undermensch. Undermensch. Any thoughts, Lou? Well, it's uh, one of those words that uh, got popular in the late 30s and uh, mid 40s uh, in Germany. Wasn't very nice. Correct. Correct. Undermensch. It's indeed, it's a Nazi term for non-Aryan. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? 
President Biden's administration is making major decisions and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Inferior people, often be referred to as the masses, uh, and I bring it up now because I think, you know, in today's parlance, uh, what the crime minister and certain education minister out in New Brunswick meant by the unvaccinated. That's basically uh, how they are, are, are talking, it, like out loud. They're, you know, the, the unvaccinated, those people. We are now the unvaccinated, the undermensch. So this is where we're headed. It's not it's not a good look. Well, I mean, I think if you look at the German word of the day and then the application in today's society in Canada, you'd have to agree. They've taken a page right out of the fascist playbook and said, yeah, this will work. Let's go that way. Right, right. Because they feel emboldened, I think. Um, Jacob, if I could get you to play that short clip again from uh, Dominic Cardi. This is New Brunswick's education minister. He actually says this stuff out loud. Have a listen. At some point, we have to say that there's going to be a response by the vaccinated, by the enormous majority who've done the right thing, and that there's going to be a decline in tolerance for those who, for whatever reasons, endanger the lives of the people around them. And that's about where I am right now. There's going to be a response, he said, Lou. What is he? That's incitement to me. I mean, if he's not inciting, he's on the knife's edge. What do you think? Well, you know, I I hear him speaking and all I can say is, you know, in every experiment with a new drug, there is the test subjects that would be the vaccinated. And then there's the control group, the unvaccinated, to see what the difference is in the performance of the compound. I'm not seeing the kinds of outstanding results with the vaccination that you would expect at this point. It's kind of like in Israel. They say, well, you know, we we went down that road, but, you know, it's not being effective after a certain period of time. We'll have to go with another a booster shot. Right. 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 Now, that may be the evolution of the compound. Right. But, you know, I, it's like the experimental group, the vaccinated, the control group, the unvaccinated. Right. Now, interesting. It seems to me that they want to metaphorically speaking, at least for now, obliterate the control group so that why in in 10 years, 20 years, we won't be able to look back and uh, we won't be able to compare the experimental group with the control group. Don't we need a control group? Shouldn't they be preserving the control group? Well, they should have or at least declare that they have identified it as part of the process. Right. Which I haven't heard. That's why I speculate is to like, you know, shouldn't you have a control group? One would think one would you think. would think now you may run into a problem where the control group 
doesn't take the experimental compound, ends up becoming, you know, a death sentence for them, right? But this is self-identified, right? The individual that doesn't want the experimental compound is saying, no, I don't want it. Great. We just want to track how you're going to, how you're going to make out, right? And this, this other thing that fell out of his <clears throat> mouth, again, we're talking about Dominic Cardi, the uh, New Brunswick education minister. Where is New Brunswick in terms of ranking for academic achievement in their system? <laughs> that, quite- might be, that might be a very, very good sample maybe for tomorrow we'll have that research well maybe you know if he is a product of a failed education system that would be very telling i might explain a lot but this idea you know that the unvaccinated are a danger to the un to the vaccinated it reminds me again this meme i mentioned off the top uh, i found on social media so it's like um you have to take the vaccine to protect me because i don't trust the vaccine that I took to protect me. I mean, it just makes no sense. Anyway, um, I want to ask you about this. Um, We were talking earlier about AOC and her tax the rich gown that she wore to this $30,000 a plate gala at the Met. And then recently, uh, Jagmeet Singh of the NDP has been talking about taxing the rich. And they think this is the way that they're going to pay for universal uh, guaranteed income and their 500,000 units of affordable housing, which when you combine those two programs, you're looking at nearly a quarter trillion dollars. So their answer, just tax the rich. Lou, you know, that's a that's one of those tropes that people throw out there. But actually, don't the rich pay most of the taxes already? Yeah, they do on a percentage basis. Uh, I think it's over 50 percent of the income tax in Canada is paid by those deemed to be rich, okay? So here's my alternative uh, suggestion, tax the civil service. Give them a, uh, you know, a, uh, an additional tax just because, because I said. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Why not be arbitrary? They are. Right. I'm saying here, here, you know, there's many more when 60 over 60 percent of gross domestic product in your country comes from government taxes and uh, borrowing to spend. Then I would look at it and say, well, where does most of the government spending go? Oh, the salaries for the pyramid of extortion. So why don't we have an extra tax on the civil servants? I'm talking the teachers the firefighters, the police, the uh, emergency medical technicians. I guess it would include the doctors, right? Because they're some kind of uh, medical establishment within the purview of a government, blah, 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 blah. Tax them first and hard. Right. And, and for that point, I was reading where I'm, I'm no you know, fan of Jeff Bezos. I think he's participated in a lot of crony capitalism. I think he's a little too cozy with the communist Chinese. However, you know, no arguing, he's built a pretty successful model. And people say, you know, tax the rich. And people like to say, oh, he doesn't pay any taxes. He paid $1.4 billion in personal income tax last year. $1.4 billion. Is that because he had to cash in his stock to pay off to the wife so he could chase the girlfriend? That's possible. possible. (laughs) What do you think are creating the jobs? Tax the rich. That's it. Chase them out of the country. And then then you can tax them once, but not a second time. Fool me once, right? 
Well, I, again, I'm saying just look at the vast number of people who are into the government trough. And I'm not talking about people in the private sector, right? People who have no pension, no benefits to speak of, and has, have to hustle for their pay every day. Just hit the civil service and hit them hard. All right. Hit them hard. Maybe you should start a new segment called the Pyramid of Extortion. Hey, I'm all in. I created it. May yeah. as well, you know, uh, continue climbing up that hill because, you know, there's only one thing that flows down from the hill. huh? Hmm, what would that be? <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you tomorrow, buddy. All right. Happy capitalism. Happy capitalism. All right. We'll talk about this liberal proposal to ban charitable status to organizations that the party or should I say Politburo, deems anti-abortion. Marty Moore, a lawyer for the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, is up next. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. All right, welcome back. Let me crib here from the uh, Liberal Party's Forward for Everyone. That's the catchy title of their uh, 2021 election platform filled with uh, goodies, uh, lots of carrots, but also a few sticks. Uh, Take, for example, uh, this uh, little goodie here, uh, or a stick, I should say. A re-elected Liberal government will no longer provide charity status to anti-abortion organizations. For example, crisis pregnancy centers that provide dishonest counseling to women about their rights and about the options available to them at all stages of the pregnancy. The Liberals also promise up to $10 million for an information portal that will include a section that counters misinformation about abortion. But this idea of denying uh, charitable status based on ideology or religious views and so forth is uh, really unprecedented. But um, uh, it's 2021 in Canada. Can we even say unprecedented anymore? Uh, Marty Moore is a lawyer with the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, and he joins me now. Marty, thanks for being here. Good to be with you, Richard. Thank you for having me. So what is the role of a government when it comes to scrutinizing a charitable uh, organization? What should they be doing and what should they not be doing? That's a good question, and and thank you. Uh, you know, clearly in Canada, charities are entities that are designed to provide for the public good and not for the personal benefit of the shareholders. And so, uh, government has a role, a clear role, in scrutinizing the financial characteristics of charities. But government does not have a role in evaluating the ideological motivations of these charities. Uh, can you imagine government scrutinizing, uh, you know, this religious organization gets to have charitable status because we support these beliefs, but we're not going to support those beliefs. Uh, clearly in Canada, we have a long history of a wide variety of charities uh, engaging in activities for the public benefit, whether you're uh, having taking one view on an environmental cause or another, you can advocate for the protection of the environment and be a charity. Uh, that applies to a broad range of other activities. What matters is that these organizations are there for the public good. And what we see uh, this political uh, platform proposal doing is switching that on its head, saying if you are this organization advocating what they call, I believe, an anti-abortion viewpoint, we are going after your charitable status. That is incredibly concerning, and that is not the role of government. Uh, Thankfully, we have a Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms that specifically says Government is not there to evaluate your thoughts, opinions, beliefs, 
and if they are doing that, they're in violation of your charter rights. Not to mention, uh, a lot of these organizations are motivated by what would be religious beliefs. And so they're also violating protections for the fundamental freedoms of conscience and religion. And so very concerning to see this kind of slipped in. It's also concerning to see, you know, quite a lot, quite frankly, a lot, not a lot of mainstream media has covered this. So in other words, just to recap, the government's role here, uh, or I guess Canada Revenue's role, is to make sure that the charitable organization is not embezzling people's money. Uh, It it is not to evaluate their status based on ideology, which is exactly what this little uh, um, platform or policy uh, states. So um, it, it sounds like then that they are, if in effect, weaponizing the CRA. Yes, I, I think I entirely agree with you, Richard. Uh, it's a very much a concern when you see a government engage in taking what is otherwise a neutral government objective, government program, the Canada Revenue Agency applying charitable status rules uh, equally to all without regard to their ideology and now imposing an ideological component to that. Uh, we have seen Sadly, uh, the federal government do this with the Canada Summer Jobs Program already, where they said, you know what, we have this neutral program where anyone across Canada, if they're providing quality uh, employment opportunities to young people, can apply for the Canada Summer Jobs Grants. And the, the government took that program and said, no, actually, before you can participate in providing quality educational and, and, and employment opportunities to young people, you have to attest. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. To agree with the sexual and uh, abortion values of the current government, uh, and that was, again, the Liberal government, they imposed that on organizations across the country. And so we saw charities, religious charities, we saw charities that just don't take ideological positions being denied from providing quality educational and and employment opportunities to young people just because they didn't adhere to a particular ideology. Now we're seeing this, the same political party that was in power then, uh, promising that if they get in power again, they're going to be imposing this through the charitable status network. Well, how does that impact the actual good charitable work that organizations do, which perhaps don't agree with the current uh, federal liberal platform? How much concern should we have when we have a government willing to go past uh, the charter protections for belief, for religion, for your expression of your beliefs in religion, uh, and, and then scrutinize you uh, based on those prohibited 
prohibited grounds. It, it is concerning. I, I should note in regard to the Canada Summer Jobs Program, the, the government actually backed down on that, canceled their attestation. They're still in court over that. They kind of moved that underground and they, they recently lost two court cases in regard to continued discrimination in the Canada Summer Jobs Program. So there is a legal precedent here and it's not in favor of these kinds of weaponizing of federal institutions and organizations to go after ideological opponents. Well, let's hope you're right, uh, Marty, because uh, we just got about a, less than a minute here. But theoretically, then um, a church, a temple, uh, a synagogue, a mosque could could uh, have its charitable status revoked because they hold certain positions on abortion. Correct. Well, that that is the apparent risk here. Uh, we, we note that in this platform, it's it says it's targeting misinformation. Of course, we know that that's a term that's being weaponized these days. It's targeting dishonest counseling. Well, what does that mean? It, it clearly, according to the Liberal Party, means if you're anti-abortion, that's dishonest counseling. So, yes, many faith groups across the country who hold those and express those views to their adherents could be at risk from this. Marty, uh, thank you so much. And uh, we really appreciate the work uh, all of you do at the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. And I know that you'll be uh, front and center in this battle. Thank you again. Thank you, Richard. Appreciate it. Marty Moore. All right. When we come back, the uh, Canadian Academics for COVID Ethics have uh, written another open letter. uh, This one to public health officers across Ontario. And uh, we'll have that story for you. It's our feature interview that's coming up in three minutes. The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Welcome back. Canadian Academics for COVID Ethics have uh, authored yet another open letter, this one to public health officials, accusing them of spreading fear, misinformation, and of forcing family and ER doctors to abandon their Hippocratic oaths to first do no harm. And this uh, letter, like the other two, um, is posted at the okla.ca website. That's the Ontario Civil Liberties Association, okla, O-C-L-A dot C-A. Dr. Anton DeRoyda joins me. Uh, Anton, welcome. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, let's, if I could just uh, crib here a little bit from the uh, the letter. Again, this is an open letter to public health officials. After months of fear, misinformation, lockdowns, mandates, and broken trust, Canadians are are starting to wake up in disbelief. You have convinced and continue to attempt convincing the public that we are in the midst of a major health crisis and thrust our country into chaos. Meanwhile, all-cause mortality in Canada is in line with trends from the past several years and indicates no such crisis. You have installed or sorry, you have instilled fear in the general public of COVID-19 by publishing egregious data such as daily cases and ICU numbers without putting those numbers into context. How serious are those cases? How many were symptomatic? What would similar case numbers be in any past years for other illnesses such as the flu? How does ICU occupancy compare to previous years? You are misleading the public and priming us for unwarranted future restrictions. Wow. I mean, uh, you're going right after them. Uh, I have to commend you for that. Now, when you say or when you write, rather, uh, that all cause mortality in Canada is in line with trends from other past uh, several years and indicate no such crisis, um, even downplaying um, downplaying COVID uh, is is seen as sacrilege now in this province. I mean, 
I, I'm very hesitant even to say it on the radio, uh, but you're, you're confident in terms of all mortality cases. In other words, there are no excess deaths due to COVID. Yes. So um, if you look at the statistics for the past several years, and yes, you're right, it is almost sacrilege to, to dare to say this. But if you look at the statistics from the past several years and you perform an analysis on it, and one of my co-authors on the letter, uh, Denis Rancourt, he did an extensive analysis on it, which he's actually posted, I think, on his, his, his website. And you look at the trends compared to the previous years. Yes, there are fluctuations from year to year. We might see some slight excess deaths, but overall, the trends are in line with, with previous years and the, the trends that you see going from year to year. I mean, yeah, there are some sort of fluctuations year to year, but we're not seeing a major spike this year that you would think that you would see if there was um, something very serious going on. And when you talk about the egregious data uh, that they have been pushing, talk to me about uh, as much as you can uh, ICU numbers, because we're, we're constantly told that the, the public health system is at risk. And that's the rationale for making sure everyone's vaccinated. We don't want to overwhelm our ICU units. Uh, but are they not always near or above capacity, even in a normal flu season? Well, this is exactly the question. Um, you know, they are giving us these numbers um, and well, not even numbers. They're just saying, oh, the ICU is in danger. Um, but if you look at the past several years, every year in, you know, in the winter time, they, you know, as you say, they do get to capacity or in some cases they exceed capacity. In fact, uh, people will probably remember when our premier first came in, one of the problems he promised to fix was the problem of hallway medicine. Um, where you had some hospitals that were so overrun that, you know, people were being housed literally in the hallways uh, because they didn't have enough rooms for them. And so the question is when they say, well, the ICUs are so overrun, well, how does it compare to other years? And again, if you look at the data, it doesn't really seem to be that much different. But they're not being transparent about this. And that's the issue. All right, we'll take a quick time out. Dr. Anton DeRoyta stays with us from the Canadian Academics for COVID Ethics. We're uh, continuing to discuss this open letter to pu public health uh, officials in the province. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about how they have, uh, according to this letter, driven up case numbers by relying on the PCR test. That's a favorite chestnut we discuss on this program all the time. And we will pursue that in three minutes. Stay with us. Just having a little chin wag on the Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Dr. Anton DeRoyda, Canadian Academics for COVID Ethics, and they have an open letter to public health officials. Again, this is uh, available at the Ontario Civil Liberties Association website, which is okla.ca or O-C-L-A dot C-A. So let's talk about PCR tests. We've talked about it ad nauseum on this program, but I don't know. The message doesn't seem to get through to anybody because we just had a case out here in Peel region where they're closing down some classes because of an uptick in cases. So, I mean, we all know where this is heading. As soon as the cases start to, to tick up, we're going to be in, a, in a, a situation where they're going to lock down schools yet again. Einstein's definition of insanity. Talk to me about the problem with these PCR tests. 
Yeah, so actually there isn't just only one problem with these PCR tests. Um, I mean, the inventor of PCR himself has said you can use a PCR test to find anything that you're looking for if you amplify it enough. So um, there are multiple problems. Um, If you operate these PCR tests at a too high cycle threshold, which is what they've been doing far too high, you can end up with up to 90% plus false positives. So if you're testing a large group of asymptomatic people and you are doing these very high cycle thresholds, you are going to find something and they're going to test positive. You're going to count them as a case, but actually they're asymptomatic. And then furthermore, the PCR can't really can't distinguish between things like the common cold, the flu, COVID, and so on. So what is it really finding? I mean, you might notice that the, the flu has vanished. Well, has it really? Or is it just, you know, flu cases are now being counted as COVID because the PCR can't tell the difference. Another thing that it can't do is it can't distinguish between live or dead matter. And so the difference between live or dead matter is whether it's infectious or not. Right? So you could have someone that tests positive, you know, by finding, you know, a piece of dead virus in them, but they're not infectious at all. So why are they counted as a case? So, yeah, there are multiple problems with the, the PCR test. Right. And in fact, the emergency use of this test has been revoked as of December. So isn't that basically they have admitted and they're going to replace it, I think, with something else. But they're they're basically saying, okay, all of those previous tests, ignore those. But we promise we'll do better next time. Yeah, basically. Trust them. Basically, that is what they're saying. Yeah. And in fact, if you look at the uh, statement of. I guess what they're looking for next time is saying they want to replace it with a test that can distinguish between COVID and the flu. So what have we been doing all this time? Precisely. All right. Uh, The other um, um, passage I want to share with you is, uh, or with my listeners, you talk about madcap computer model predictions. Again, this is being directed to uh, Ontario public health officials. You say you write, you have provided madcap computer model predictions to justify lockdowns, proclaiming the lockdowns as successful when the predictions did not materialize. This is not proof. Uh, just kind of flesh that out for us, if you could. Yeah, basically, I mean, a computer model is a prediction um, and it's only as good as the assumptions that you put into it. And it's only as good as the quality of the data that you put into it. And if you have a complex system, you know, um, you know, garbage in, garbage out. And the same with, with the assumptions and uncertainties grow over time as well. And then the question is, you know, you, you might recall, they often say, well, we need to lock down because if we don't do anything, we're going to be up to, um, you know, 15,000 cases in a month or, or something like that. And, you know, they just throw a crazy number out there and, and whether that's really what the model is providing or whether it's just a number put to scare us into, locking down, then when those numbers don't materialize, instead of looking back and saying, well, what were the assumptions in our model that they were so off? They just say, well, our lockdowns worked. And, you know, because, you know, our crazy predictions that we made didn't materialize, then whatever we told you to do, you know, whether it could be standing on your head, um, it was effective, which that's not not proof at all, especially if you just look and compare regions that didn't lock down on the world compared to regions that did. And so the real proof of looking at what's really happening 
is that there is no difference between regions that didn't lock down and regions that did. So, for example, compare Florida compared to California. There's no difference. Right, right. One of the most egregious things that I think has happened is the suppression um, of or ignoring early treatment, early therapeutics. There is no standard of care for COVID. It's uh, if you can if you can still breathe, just stay home. And if you can't breathe, come in and we'll put you on a ventilator and which often hastens death. Uh, Talk to me about how early therapeutics have been ignored and the price we have paid as a result. Yeah, this is really the very sad thing. And this is what leads to a lot of questions about what is going on. I mean, COVID supposedly is this great unknown. We don't know what it is and how to deal with it. And so you have frontline doctors. They're trying different things. They're trying medications off-label. And some of them appear to be promising. For example, hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. You know, different doctors have come up with different protocols. And they're reporting that they're being highly successful. And you would think, given that COVID is this big unknown and people don't know what to do with it, that if they really want to deal with the problem, they would jump on anything that would look promising. But instead, they go out of their way to just shut things down. I mean, you might remember there was a fraudulent study published vilifying hydroxychloroquine, which eventually had to be pulled, but the damage was done. Um, Ivermectin is, is being ignored. In fact, right now, it's still being vilified. The mainstream is saying ivermectin is a horse dewormer, which is true, but it's also incredibly dishonest because it's also being used in humans. It's on the World Health Organization list of essential medicines for humans for the treatment of parasitic diseases. It's also not uncommon to use it off-label. And so there's actually plenty of published evidence that these treatments do actually work. But no, early on, they gave us a narrative that the only way out of this was through vaccines. And for whatever reason, they've just not even looked at these other treatments. And in fact, they've gone so far as to try to prevent doctors from prescribing them. And they've kept the information from doctors as to the potential effectiveness. And this to me is criminal almost. I agree. Uh, We just have less than a minute here, but do you think we'll ever know how many lives were lost as a result of suppressing um, these therapeutics? That's difficult to know, Um, even because the the death counts are, you know, they count anybody that tests positive as a COVID death, even if they were hit by a bus. Um, But, you know, some of the numbers that have been put out from studies are saying that up to 75 to between 75 and 85 percent of hospitalizations could have been prevented. So I I guess you could take a number of deaths and multiply it by um, take 85 percent of that or 75 percent if you want to be conservative. And that would be your estimate. Staggering. Absolutely staggering. All right. We'll take one final out and continue uh, to discuss this open letter to Ontario public health officials published at OCLA, the Ontario Civil Liberties Association.ca. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. Two minutes remain with Dr. Anton DeRoyda. He is a member of the Canadian Academics for COVID Ethics. And again, they've penned an open letter to public health officials in Ontario. And uh, this is published at OCLA.ca, the Ontario Civil Liberties Association 
website, OCLA.ca. Uh, the, the plan is in this province, if not the country, to send mobile vaccine clinics to schools. So they're going to send a van to a public school uh, where children um, between the age of 12 and, and uh, the age of majority will be offered a vaccine, no parental consent required. Now, I have looked at the forms uh, that you fill out online even, uh, you know, before you take your vaccine. You make an appointment, you get sent some forms, and, and they ask about, you know, some pretty complicated medical questions. I don't think I can even answer those without, you know, having to go back and consulting with my physician and going through my medical records. Have I ever had this type of thrombosis or have I had this type of incident and so forth? I mean, I don't even understand the language. How would they expect children to make or to have informed consent, let alone adults? So one of the the, uh, the things that um, you discuss in this letter is these Ontario public health officials pushing these vaccines which you say, again, experimental, uh, no long-term data. Uh, talk to me about, though, the, the, uh, this push to vaccinate children without parental consent. This is, to me, is absolutely unconscionable. Yeah, that is the most scary thing of all. I mean, the, the, the parents' job is there to protect their children, and that ability is being taken away from them. And, um, you know, there was just a recent study that came out that showed that teenage boys are six times higher risk of developing myocarditis than they are from being hospitalized from COVID. And that's just something that they have recently discovered. There are so many unknowns about these vaccines. Uh, if you look at the approval letter um, that FDA put together for the Pfizer community product, it lists 13 different studies that they are still required to do as condition of approval and report on. And the reporting dates for these studies range between 2024 to 2027. And if you look at the subjects of these studies, the very first one or second one, I'm not sure which it is, is the study on the efficacy and safety of this vaccine in youth. Four or five other studies are all on myocarditis. And then there's another study on the effect on pregnant women. So there are a number of things they don't know about these vaccines. So, yeah, to come back to your, your, your comment, um, children, there's no way they can provide informed consent. And there's no way that anybody can say that these vaccines are safe just from the simple point of view that you just don't know what you don't know. But on the other hand, uh, if you look at the, you know, the vaccine adverse event reporting system in the United States, for example, the number and the variety of adverse events that have already been reported, even within Canada by, by some MDs who um, are being silenced or are not being allowed to speak, um, it's unprecedented compared to other, other vaccines in the past. Right. I think, as you point out here, it's something like uh, the number of reported COVID vaccine related deaths already more than one and a half times the number of deaths reported in conjunction with all other vaccines combined since the implementation of the system in 1990. We're talking about to date about 14,000 deaths reported in the U.S. vaccine adverse event reporting system. And we, we don't really have 
we have sort of an equivalent here, but it's 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 not exactly the same. It's it's not as transparent. I understand if I wanted to find out about adverse um, vaccine events up here in Canada, I think I'd have a difficult time. Yeah, there's a lot less transparent. And um, for example, well, even to find the data, I think, but even to put data in is difficult. So I think Dr. Patrick Phillips, who's been active on Twitter, he's mentioned that the forms that you need to fill out are, are very difficult. And he posted about, um, I think, five adverse events that he had seen. I think some included hospitalization and all five of them were, reje- were rejected Yes. By, by Canada's system saying, well, these don't meet our criteria. So what is the criteria for an adverse event then? So what is it that you would like Ontario public health officers to do about this mess? Well, first of all, they should allow public debate. Uh, there are plenty of experts out there that have a differing point of view. There's plenty of evidence they should allow public debate but they should be transparent as well. But in the end, they have caused so much damage. Um, they have basically cast this big spell over all of society where society, well, not all, some of society are awake, but a lot of society where is blindly trusting them in the meantime, a lot of damage is being caused. And the only thing that could snap them out of that spell would be for the public health to publicly say, we have been wrong. Uh, there is a better way, um, and we are stepping down. Wow. To get them to admit that they were wrong when, when, when so many lives have been lost, I mean, is, is that even a possibility at this point? Maybe much earlier on, maybe in the early months of COVID, but at 18 months into this, after all the lives that have been lost, all the, the damage, the collateral damage to uh, uh, public health because of delayed screenings and, and procedures and therapies and mental health issues and opioid addictions. All of that stems from these this major policy blunder. How could we expect them at this point to say, sorry, we did it wrong? No, I, I think you're right. I don't think they're going to admit it at all. But, uh, you know, the purpose of this letter was not to get them to to resign. The purpose of this letter was to be hard hitting, um, keeping it brief um, and to get this distributed as widely as possible in an attempt to wake up the public and let the public know what you know, we academics have seen, and what we think of what the, the public health as officials have done, and what they should do. All right. And once again, this uh, open letter to Ontario's public health officials can be found at the uh, Ontario Civil Liberties Association website. That's O-C-L-A, OCLA.ca. And uh, Dr. Anton de Reuter with the Canadian Academics for COVID Ethics. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Jody, Brandon, and Jacob, and I'll be back tomorrow to do it all over again, God willing. We'll uh, push back against climate change alarmism. We'll meet the Green Party candidate for Mississauga Center. And uh, the former executive VP for Fox News, John Moody, will be here to discuss his new book, Dealing with China's Foreknowledge of the SARS-CoV-2 Virus and much, much more. The Brian Promby Hour is next. I'll talk to you tomorrow at four. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed. Unbent. Unbroken.
That's it. That's all. For more Richard Serrett Show, podcasts, blogs, and other stuff, go to saga960am.ca. Stop talking past each other and start talking with each other. We'll see you tomorrow afternoon at 4 on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960am. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.